massive storm was raging on the mountain. There was relentless rain and thunder, and forked lightning split the sky from end to end so often that it charged the atmosphere with static electricity, the kind that made your hair stand on end and suddenly converted an innocently exposed iron surface into a conductor. There was an ominous hiss in the air because of the highly charged particles and it was one of those nights when umbrellas, rifle barrels and radio antennae needed to be covered or the owner ran the risk of grievous harm. It was nature at its destructive best. A sensible man on such an occasion seeks the comfort and safety of home. But sense and soldiering often don't go hand in hand. In fact, in a special forces unit, it is taught that it is precisely this kind of bad weather that is ideal for surprise and one often hears the remark that a dark night and inclement weather is a commando's best friend. Those are the opening lines of Abhay Sapru's combat novel, In the Valley of Shadows. First in a series of three novels, today we talk about this book, Fighting the Mujahideen as a Special Forces Officer, and the Kashmir Valley. Regular listeners of the show will know Abhay from the previous season. He graduated from Delhi University and subsequently joined the Indian Military Academy. Commissioned in 1988, he volunteered for the Special Forces. During his decade-long stint with the Indian Army, he served extensively in almost all the insurgency-ridden areas in the subcontinent, Sri Lanka, Kashmir and the northeast of India. He is a recipient of the Sena Medal, awarded for gallantry in operations in Sri Lanka and the Army Chief's Commendation Card for Exemplary Service. Abhay was a core member in raising an Commando RR Battalion for Ops in Kashmir and served on the staff with two Army Chiefs as their ADC. I'm Manisha Kadgatur and this is Season 2 of Tell It Like It Is. Welcome back Abhay. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you, Manisha. It's good to be back. Tell me, Abhay, when did you get the idea of writing In the Valley of Shadows? Um, Manisha, I've been writing short stories, sitting in ambush under walnut trees. Uh, pity they never saw the light of day. But as far as this book is concerned, uh, you read the introduction. I think you read a paragraph uh, of the preface. If you go down further, it tells you that it was one of those nights when we were out trying to hit a militant camp. And first light, we hit the top. The weather had cleared, and I called for a break. And as I sat there at about 10,000 feet, Kobal Margi top it was called, gazing across the valley, in the distance, I saw snow-capped peaks. And in that range of peaks, there was one mountain which, which was sticking out, head and shoulders above the rest. And I was sitting on the Shamshabari range, and this was northwest, and I wondered, this could be the Pir Panjal, and which range could this be? And I pulled out my map. The Gujar guide along with me um, perhaps read my mind and said, you won't find it on the map, Janab. That's Nangap. And that's in Gilgit. Um, and I sat there looking across the valley and I allowed 
briefly my soul to soar across. And I wondered, as I sat there, about the men who came from across, the so-called Mujahideen, to fight us. And I lamented the fact that I could never sort of walk across under the present circumstances to visit places which I just read. Uh, Gilgit, Hunzad, Heer, such romantic names. And I think it was at that particular moment I had this strong desire to capture in a tale all the so-called dramatis personae, the army, the locals, the mujahideen who were in called jihad kashmir One of those moments, like Murakami says, that he was watching a so-called song, and exactly when the ball struck that bat and made that sound, he knew he wanted to be a writer. So I think it was one of those moments. Nevertheless, it took many years before I could put pen to paper and I carried this little story and plot in my head. That's how I came about writing this particular book. Okay. So how much of this book is fact and how much is fiction? Manisha, the preface pretty much gives out the essence of what is in fact uh, true and what is fiction. The discerning reader uh, can easily notice in the narrative the thin line I tread between fact and fiction. And uh, it's not been very difficult for me to do that because the facts clearly outweigh any fiction I might have had to invent or imagine. Uh, but I think it would be fair to say that except for the plot, which is also, in my opinion, not too bizarre or dramatic, and has more than a kernel of truth, the bulk of the story in the context of time and place is factual with incidents and experiences either personal or taken from friends. Most of them are personal. But, you know, the pity is that we operated in the subcontinent, most of the time in our own country. And therefore, a lot of things can neither be said nor written. And this is where I envy the Brit or the American soldier who serves beyond his borders and has no such issues about expressing himself you know, in Iraq or Afghanistan or wherever he's uh, served. And which is the reason why these are novels and uh, go out as, as fictional accounts. Uh, and if you, if you read the book, which I know you read the book, uh, one of the protagonists, Sher Khan, mm -hmm. and his picture is there on my webpage. If you go there, you'll see that tall guy with the long, with long hair. Well, Sher Khan was read. Um, and of all the conversations that I had with him, and you know, you could latch on to their, to their frequency and chat them up, and they recognized your voice. Uh, I'll sign while I was in the Lola was Sefullah Sef, and they knew where I was located. They knew a fair amount, fair amount about me. Uh, if I can digress a little, I remember one of the conversations which had a touch of humor in it. Mm -hmm. So you want to hear about it? Of course. So, you know, there's another conversation which I mentioned in the book, of course. But this one, 
this particular one was peak winters and uh, we were in tentage there are permanent locations now in those days there was tentage there was six feet of snow and uh, at a place called Krusen up in the Lola Valley and at about two o'clock at night there was a burst of fire so I stepped out concerned that perhaps the post has been attacked and I land up and I see these two sentries uh, who were in an open sandbag bunker, uh, very worried. So I asked them, and what had trans transpired was that two very hungry leopards out on their hunt uh, perhaps came along having circuit the village, not finding the dogs they used to generally pick up, and saw these two very easy targets and the one in front, because I saw the pug marks, the one in front um, leapt and miscalculated the distance, landing on the sandbag, knocking the LNG barrel, while the, the sentry behind opened up. Oh, my God. Both of them, of course, disappeared back up the hill. Anyway, come morning, nice and clear, the sun is out. And like always in the Lolab conversation, starts off on the radio. And up comes Sher Khan. Berating a, a local Kashmiri militant, uh, telling him that uh, the guy had gone down three days ago to bring up rations, and no rations have come up. There's been no food. Uh, the weather's been bad, and this is not the way to do jihad. And to add to their grief, there was a share at night, which has attacked Javed, and Javed has been badly mauled. So along with the rations, please send up a doctor. So I butted in. Assalamu alaikum, Sher Khan. And this is what happens when you don't come down and fight us. Uh, and I said, these, these so-called shares that you ran into, they are trained. They've been trained by us. And this is one of our trained, <laughs> you know, leopards who's gone across to hunt you guys because you guys don't step out. And I said, you do realize that if you get killed by a, by a leopard, you're not going up to Jannat and you're not getting those 72 Huris. So he had a good laugh. And I always thought they didn't have too much humor. So he had a good laugh, sniggered, and said, Oh, Janab, he says, typical of you guys. This is a Hindu share. That's why he couldn't even kill properly. And he says, You're talking about 72 uh, Huris. He says, In my present state, if you you give me one hoorie, I can't do justice to her. And then I had a good laugh. You know, so I still remember that conversation and both of us sort of laughed at each other. But that's about Sher Khan. Okay. So uh, that, that's, a, that's an interesting tale. Now, Abhay, your book is sprinkled with poems and couplets. Tell me about that. Um, Manisha, I've always enjoyed books where chapters start with a quote or a saying. And, uh, you know, some of those quotes are relevant. And perhaps in, in some way, there is something to take back from the book. You remember those quotes, uh, if they're nice. But I guess uh, you are referring more to the, the poems and the quotes that I have written Correct. in the book. Correct. If I, if I digress a little, there is a little incident behind this. In the summer of 95, 
I was up in the Doda Hills. And there's a third book which is coming on that. Mm-hmm. With a fighting patrol on a seek and destroy mission. Sometime at first light, I was ambushed. And when the guns fell silent, two civilians were dead. One severely wounded. My lead scout was shot twice. And he died later. And Doda district, not being a disturbed area. An FIR was promptly lodged in my name for multiple homicide. The National Human Rights Commission sent me a note and the army, uh, not to be left behind, instituted a core of inquiry. And they promptly attached me to a RR battalion, which is a Rashtra Rifle Battalion, which was stationed there in a place called Thatri, uh, while the court of inquiry and the witnesses were being called and I was being taken all over the place. Uh, and at that stage, I had nothing to do. And a tremendous stress because, you know, if they prove something, then it's, it's a court-martial, uh, two civilians dead. And everybody was sort of baying for my blood. So to keep my mind off all the stress, I wrote a lot of poems. And they're still lying around somewhere. I don't know. But I managed to use some of them in the books. And strangely, this poetic phase lasted just about two, three weeks, which is the time I was under investigation. And it never came back. Never came back. And it's been 25 years plus now. Perhaps I need to be under extreme duress to get it back again, but I don't know. <laughs> that was the only time I wrote it and I'm using them. Oh, thank God for that. Um, tell me a little bit about the period that your uh, book is set in and describe to me what the scenery was, because this is the Kashmir we're talking about. This is the Kashmir Valley you're talking about. Manisha, I served in Kashmir between 95 and 97. And um, if you know the geography of the place, then from the Shamshabari in the north to the Peer Panjal in the south and from Rajori in the west to the Barwan Valley in the east, I covered it all. If, you, if I was to take 20 days plus stay in a place, I must have moved 30, 40 locations. Most people who have visited Kashmir generally land up in Srinagar and its environs. But there's a lot of mountain country surrounding the valley. Uh, especially the Doda Mountains, they were vicious. And in the army in those days was picketed around the valley or along the roadhead. So, of course, any operation up in the villages, you, you had to really climb. And these climbs are prodigious, often taking 12 to 15 hours at night because all climbing was done at night to maintain surprise. Um, in those days, the villages were smaller, spread out. The mountains were forested thickly forested. And in summers, you would find the Gujars uh, with their cattle. And lots of militant movement would happen along the old Gujar tra- uh, trails. But if you have soldiered in the desert or the tropical jungles of northeast and Sri Lanka, the harsh terrain in these places, by and large, lends itself to soldiering. You expect violence. Terrain is harsh. But in the, in the valley, uh, during summers especially, when the blossoms were in bloom. The sheer beauty made it very difficult to imagine that extreme violence lurked very, very near the surface. And the tranquility of the place was just a facade which could be shattered any moment. And that was a bit of a challenge because you had to constantly pinch yourself. Don't get carried away. You know, 
people look beautiful place looks beautiful there are apples but this is all going to be gone in 2 seconds because the violence levels are very high you perhaps keep in touch with your army buddies uh what are the differences in the modus operandi now and then has kashmir changed since you were there uh, of course i stay in touch with uh, the old buddies in my unit all soldiers do and i'll tell you a, an incident i'm more and more of an anecdote a few years back fighting patrol from one of our teams so this was from my particular battalion one of the teams operating there clashed with an infiltrating group of militants i'm told and this is somewhere around the time this taj incident happened this was perhaps after that i'm told that this bunch which had crossed over 12 of them were from the same stable that produced the, the guys who turned up in in bombay for the taj operation now this bunch turned in crossed over the guide deserted at some stage and they were drifting around aimlessly in a forest up in north kashmir when they ran into an rr patrol broke contact and which is when the sf uh, hunting party was sent in to track them down and they clashed somewhere on the heights uh, the consequence was we lost eight including an officer very fine officer who was who was given an ashok chakra uh, for that operation anyway so uh, it was a bit of a shocker and a few of us retired decided to head up and pay the boys a visit to raise their morale and chat up the officers and at some stage during that visit we forced the commanding officer to take us up to our old hunting ground in the lolab and we drove up we passed through kopara town all quiet and i recall that in those days in my time the excitement was palpable the street would be packed with bearded heavily armed men conversations contacts and casualties always this incessant chatter on the radio as it caught on to militant intercepts loud and clear you could you could hear them you know you knew they were packed they were there on the mountains and you know the other incident that i may narrate is i recall the sp kupara coming across to pay us a visit in lola mm-hmm. and like you do or we do um when we go and visit someone you carry flowers or chocolate or sweets or whatever the sp sahab came in and uh, they presented us some some magazines and grenades and a pistol and and the general reaction from all of us standing there was are sp sahab takalluf ki kya baat thi isne khali haath thodna aa sakta hu so in return when he was going back after having lunch in there you know he was presented with some grenades and ammunition and etc etc now i give this example to tell you what the state of affairs must have been where instead of sweets and chocolate etc here people are presenting you know Hi. arms and ammunition to each other terrible and and the joke and then the joke in the lolab used to be that you rather not till your land because there is always this fear that you might unearth someone's cache arms cache oh my god and the villagers would joke ki sab yahan to fruit se zyada to yahan hathiyar kante hain so you know those were the days and everything was missing it was like a normal street and we were told 
because you know bulk of that excitement used to come from all that chatter on the on the radio and we were told the army and the militants don't use um, radio sets anymore everybody's on to mobiles what are you saying um, yeah everybody uses mobiles and you know when we drove into lolab we were still nervous me and this friend of mine he he and i kept looking at each other this is where the fire would come somebody would fire at you there was always this fear of an id blast and and the mountains closed in at this narrow place where there was a ziyarat um the place had grown you could see how it had gone up the mountain side um people were going about their business and you know the major and i exchanged disappointing looks and silently lamented the loss of a fantastic training area and the loss of our old hunting ground and i think you know the ceo uh, perhaps read our thoughts and remarked Uh, yeah, and I still remember what he said. He said, "Don't worry, sir. All is not lost. We may not have quantity, but the quality, the quality of the mujahid has certainly improved, because now we are invariably facing the fidaeen." Manisha, I have been going skiing every year since two thousand six, seven, every year, and it gives me great satisfaction to see the normalcy over the years that the state has attained. Then, ninety-five, ninety-seven, I think till two thousand. and more we used to cock our weapons on crossing patni top and you started scanning the hills you didn't know when you would get fired upon or the constant fear of ids never left you and and you know countrymen traveling to kashmir now can perhaps perhaps never appreciate the toil the labor the sacrifice of life that has gone into bringing the situation to this state lots of people lost their lives lots of people Thank. Is that that that's the difference? Thank. Huge difference. Huge difference. Thank God for the peace. Abhay, as a soldier, what are your views on the opposition or the Mujahideen fighter? And now I know you also mentioned Fidayin, so please explain Fidayin versus Mujahideen as well. Manisha, in those days, ninety-five, I'm talking about the bulk of the foreign militants who came were Pakistani Punjabis uh, from the northwest frontier. sprinkling of pathans mm-hmm. from afghanistan not too many and uh, this was basically the flotsam leftovers of the afghan jihad mm-hmm. uh, post the soviet union withdrawing from afghanistan there was a whole bunch of these people foot loose fancy free looking for direction and they were sent right across into kashmir fantastic seasoned deadly fighters no quarters asked no quarters given indifferent and i and i say that and i explain that in my book i'll probably read it but uh the fidayin on the other hand comes with a specific purpose it's a one way ticket he's got a mission and he has no intentions of going back he's going to die in achieving that mission so that's the difference thin line that bunch would fight fight till the end but if he could get out of a situation he would get out not this bunch this bunch is there to die um smaller numbers come in now with specific uh, operational instructions uh, and that and they're not going back as they themselves used to say kafan pehn ke aaye wapas nahi jayenge but coming to what my views are on the opposition as a soldier you know i was fortunate enough to have faced in my in the opposition that i faced the tamil tigers in sri lanka the nagaland sergeant 
I also operated in in Assam when the Ulfa issue came up. And then, of course, Mujahideen in Kashmir, where I spent a long time. Uh, but without getting into any sort of comparison, uh, let me just limit myself to the Mujahideen part. And here, again, I will limit myself to the foreign fighter. And I will quickly, if you have time. Of course. So, I'm reading from the book now. Mm-hmm. I had often believed that perhaps the foreign militants... <clears throat> were romantics and adventurers in their own rustic sort of a way. <clears throat> well, they were not. Some were in it for economic reasons, but the majority were benevolent religious zealots in varying degrees with a very narrow vision to life. They had a kind of spirit de as any good fighting unit should have, but with loose group affiliations. When cornered, they invariably fought well, and to the bitter end, their attitude towards death, often bordering on di- indifference. The description of the Bedouin by T.E. Lawrence in his book, Seven Pillars of Wisdom, may well have been written for the average foreign Muslim fighter in Kashmir. <clears throat> and he described it very well. They were limited, narrow-minded people whose inert intellects lay fallow in incurious resignation. Their imaginations were vivid, not creative. And he further describes them as having a belief almost mathematical in its limitations and repellent in its unsympathetic form. And my conversations with with quite a few of these guys, senior leaders, the history they had been taught in the madrasas was limited and they were very proud of the fact that they had beaten the Russians, as, as they would say, you know, uh, and if, you know, this happened a few times, we got a couple of senior leaders and they would carry in their pocket uh, a poem. And them, I found, had torn it to pieces, but I picked up a few of them and I wrote this in the book. You know, there is a poem. It's called the Mujahid's Faryad. Correct. Uh, some of those things I picked up from this poem they used to carry, but they used to tear it to pieces and I could never get my hand on a, a complete uh, composition of this. But one of the words they used to use was that uh, we scattered. What do they say? So they were good fighters. They were cocky fighters. Because, you know, they, they, <laughs> they were up against a professional army. And, uh, and we got them. But, uh, yeah, they were a cocky bunch of people. Wow. Okay. Now, this is the surprise yeah. element for you. We're introducing, mm-hmm. in Season 2, a set of three rapid-fire questions. So, are you ready? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So, between the Mujahideen, the Tamil Tiger, and the Ulfa, who is the fiercest fighter? <laughs> the, the army, the part of the army, which went to... Sri Lanka, Mm -hmm. will swear by the fighting qualities of the Tamil Tiger. Mm -hmm. You know, perhaps we were not prepared, perhaps we were not trained, we were fighting on their terrain, uh, but all said and done, the most dangerous fighter is a man who's got the intelligence and is motivated. Uh, As the American Special Forces say, you know, the right man in the right job is the most devastating weapon. And the Tamil, in the context of time and place, 
Oh, he was deadly. He was deadly. So yes, number one goes to the Tamil Tigers. Okay. So mountains or tropical jungles? Which one do you prefer? I prefer the mountains. You know, I did my mountaineering course. Uh, I prefer the mountains. I I just disliked the tropical jungles, especially the ones in northeast in Nagaland. My God, terrible! The leeches and the rain, not good. Finally, your weapon of choice and why? Manisha, I I'm an old soldier. Uh, I've been out of the system for a long time, so I've never seen all these fancy weapons these guys are carrying now. And I go back to the unit and I get a chance to fire them, and they've got. you know a collection of the finest weapons that you can think of in my time it was exactly what the opposition was carrying it was as if the army had decided that we'll be sporting in this little war of ours and the only advantage we had over the opposition was that we could throw in numbers when required and our casualties could be treated promptly in hospitals or clinics or wherever otherwise the equipment the gear everything was the same they carried ak's we carried ak's the only one weapon and i described the efficacy of that weapon in my third book was the rocket launcher heavy as hell but when used in combat oh it's what in boxing parlance is called a haymaker it closes the argument but otherwise the ak it is i carried nothing else all right that's it folks uh do check out in the valley of shadows available on amazon flipkart and bookstores whenever they open you can reach abhay at abhaysapro.com in our next episode we go deep into the jungles of sri lanka that's it from me leave a voice message and i'll include that in the next episode and thank you so much for being on the show again abhay it's a pleasure 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 a pleasure manisha